0: One
1: time for the underdog, one time for the sequence star Let me see you put them up Reach the sky, touch the stars, up above, cause it's one time for the underdog one for the underdog. I'm Patrick Bedevi, host of Alutainment, and today we're going to be sitting down with Chip Wilson, the founder of Lululemon, $4 billion net worth. He's going to talk about how he took his business, Lululemon, from zero to doing $12 billion of revenues per year. So when they started Lululemon, they were 1%. 1% of their customers were men. They went from 1% in 1998 to 30% in 2018. How do you do that? I'm so curious to find out more. Uh, about how the CEO and founder Chip Wilson did it, so with that being said, Hi, right, Patrick. It's great to be with yeah, you today. Thanks for having me. Cool. Uh, for some of you that don't know, when Chip and I were talking for a few weeks about wanting to do this interview, we were thinking about doing it in our Speedos today, but we thought it was inappropriate. Maybe you'd be uncomfortable. <laughs> and that is an inside joke, because one thing about Chip's work environment is, if he had it his way, why don't you tell the rest of us? If you had it your way, what would you wear? Three-piece,
0: uh, you know, maybe Armani suit, or what would it look like? I mean, I guess from living a lifetime as a competitive swimmer, you know, when I was young, it's funny how I'm 63 years old. And still define myself as a competitive swimmer, but you know, living that life in a, in a speedo was, uh, you know, just the most comfortable <laughs> thing ever. And I, and I think the cold water and swimming always kind of cooled me down. So when I actually went to put clothes on, it was exceedingly uncomfortable, and I felt I was always sweating. So the speedo felt where where life really happened for me. So how wild is that? You like to have the
1: least amount of clothes on, but your business is to put clothes on people, right? That's a, that's a pretty
0: interesting. Uh, dynamic. Yeah, but it was the context of knowing that that's how clo- all clothing should fit. Like you should be naked. You shouldn't ever think about your clothing. I like that. Especially in athletics. I like that. If you want to win that event, you shouldn't have to think about what you're wearing.
1: So is that like, a, are you thinking about like coming up with a new league, like nude competitive sports type of thing? Is that a next uh, project after
0: Lululemon or is that just no, an idea? No, that's just a, okay. a design concept.
1: So New York Times don't write about it and say he said he's gonna do something like that. So look, let's get into it and uh before talking business, one of the things I'm always curious about is a person like you. You've made it to the top. Everybody's looking at you, saying, "Well, one day I'd love to have a story like yours." We have a lot of young entrepreneurs who follow Valuetim, a lot of executives and people that run businesses somewhere around, you know, a million at the low revenue upwards of a hundred million dollars per year, and they want to find out how to scale their business. But prior to going there, your personality is very different than Mark Cuban's personality. But your net worth is slightly more than his. This is not a dynamic, you're loud, you're this, you're very subtle, very calm, Very your temperament is an interesting temperament that you have. If I was in high school with
0: you, we're in 10th grade, we're best friends, (laughs) we hang out together, who's Chip? Chip would have been an athlete, a competitive swimmer who really would like to play football, but almost too good a competitive swimmer to quit to play football, recognizing I'm getting too big to swim, so in other words, I can't do. I can only do sprints. I can't do long distance. I'm a mediocre student, but I live for athletics. So the it seems like the only reason I'm going to school is, phys ed for you at that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. My dad was one of those original hippies. You know, the organic food and the self development wow. and the you know living in the Esalen Institute in California and going to the Est here in the '70s and so. I was a little bit of a function of that in the inquiry about it, but definitely thought my dad was very weird at the time. And um, and now, of course, I see almost everything he told me actually has come to fruition. And life actually is about good food and knowing yourself. Isn't that amazing?
1: Yeah. So so now y- y- you have a hippie as a dad, but you're extremely competitive. H- how does that happen? What What caused that? Was it just your DNA or was your house a house of Let's play Monopoly and see who wins. Let's play cards and see. Let's play backgammon and see who wins. Where did that competitive fire come to chip or was it just part of your DNA?
0: Yeah, I think it's part of DNA. and It doesn't mean it has to be there forever in life. You know, I, I actually think Lululemon was built on not competitive, actually for everyone winning, which was far different than the other athletic companies. So it took me 40 years to get to that point. And, you know, for me to win, everyone has to win.
1: For you to win, everyone has yeah, to win. Yeah, So the, the, were you ever an extremely super competitive guy that maybe you push some people away from you or there was never that part of you? It was just an internal composed type of a competitor?
0: No, I definitely, I wanted to win. I mean, there was that, I think it's the testosterone as a, as a kid, but as a child. But I think there's a time when you realize, okay, well, I have a choice. I can compete to win or I can, that's a good question why did i change i changed because winning only got me a win a small wins but actually being inclusive and bringing everyone in i started to see that could bring me a bigger win
1: so to you competitiveness does it mean that you're a solo competitor i know you're a swimmer
0: but are you somebody that also follows team sports not anymore i'm um, only because i don't like the whole drugs and the. Um, the media excitement about it seems like that my love of the pure sport has gone Which is probably why I love rugby more than anything else right now the rugby sevens I think that are being played in Hong Kong and Vancouver around it's that English gentlemanly sport Where you kind of give it all and you can like crack a guy's head, but he's still your best friend Was there a tipping point where that shift
1: was made on your mind or no like like for instance when Lululemon first got started was the chippy? side of you still there? Because, I mean, your manifesto when you wrote it, that sounds like a pretty competitive guy's manifesto. You said, one day we would like to make Pepsi and Coca-Cola with cigarettes is today. Great marketing, I think it's a terrible product,
0: something like that. Yeah, Coke and Pepsi are the tobacco of the future. Great marketing, terrible product. But really where I was coming from is I felt like I didn't care so much about making money, but Lululemon was a platform, a social health platform. I see what you're saying. I totally feel that, by the way. Yeah, I totally feel that.
1: You know how you get an athlete that lasts a long time in the league and, and you kind of say, well look at the perfect LeBron James, he's got the great body, but this guy's got the di- discipline to condition himself and he gets along with people, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But you come across like a guy extremely capable, he pays attention to numbers, creative, but at the same time people actually Like working with this guy. You got a chippy side that you don't mind having a tough conversation, but you're still somebody that's likable enough where people say, I want to work, I want to be around a guy like this. So, very, you could be called an anomaly to some people as a CEO, but that's a whole different conversation we could have. So, okay, so you're an athlete. You know, you come out, I think you started a couple other businesses before Lululemon actually happened. What was it you were doing prior to Lululemon it led to, to, you know, saying, why don't we we start a new business
0: called Lululemon? Well, I, I fell into the surf business by mistake. I was living in Canada, no competition. Quicksilver and Billabong had just come from Australia into California. OP was here. It was just at the fledgling start of that. My mom was a sewer. I was a big guy. Clothing was very tight at that time, very uncomfortable. I kind of took the concept to Canada and because I was such a big guy, I, I started making, and there was no real lycra at the time that I knew of outside of Speedos that I, um, I started making uh, larger, longer shorts for men. I went into that business and then as that became a commodity business, in other words, it went from zero to 500 companies, too much product, too, too few consumers. Then I morphed into skateboarding. Same thing happened and morphed into snowboarding. Then when that became a commodity product, I was just in the right place at the right time to sell to a public company. Got some money out, could sit back and go, now what?
1: And then that's when you said, let's try to do Lululemon.
0: Yeah, and I'd always had this thing where if I saw three things in a very short amount of time, I knew it was something that was going to happen, Hmm. 100%. So I kind of walked by a... A telephone post, and there was a little sign there for a yoga class, which I'd never seen before. I'm in a coffee shop, and I hear two women talk about a yoga class. And I go and read the newspaper, and there's an article about yoga. And I went, this is going to happen. It's just, I'm the type of person that looks for that kind of thing. My success seems to have been like just being five to seven years ahead of the normal consumer trend. Where did the name come from, by the way? Blue lemon yeah when i had um, west beach which was my former west beach snowboard i had a skateboard brand i, I had called homeless homeless so, homeless yeah <laughs> so i was i was making it i was selling to europe and japan and um and then i went to register the brand because i thought, okay this is actually going to go but i couldn't register homeless because h-o-m is french for male and there was it was would have been impossible to trademark snowboarding was going straight up and Skateboarding was, like I said, becoming a commodity product. So I went, I'm not going to do homeless anymore. I'm not going to do it. So I told everybody, and that year I was over in Japan and I'm showing them the snowboard line. And after I do it, they turn to me and they go, uh, Mr. Chipsan, we're homeless. I said, I told you guys I'm not doing it. And, um, and I told them the reasons why again. And next year, the same thing show them the snowboard line, Mr. Chipsan, we're homeless. Told them the same thing. And you got to get at that time, it was kind of like um, the Japanese yen was the highest ever. They were buying all of America, Pebble Beach. The what, yours is 97, 98? Yeah, 95, 90, 94, 96, something in there. So they phoned me up a couple months later and they said, Mr. Chipsan, we want to buy Name Homeless from you. And I went, and so I thought, I'm selling Complete Air because I'm not making it anymore. I don't own the trademarks to it. And I'm desperate for money. Um, so, so I gave them a price I thought was absolutely ridiculous. They said, yes. And I went, oh, you know, that's the easiest money I ever made. <laughs> so I thought, well, why did they like that name so much? And I went, oh, you know, like the, Jap- there's big, five big Japanese trading firms. And they are all starting to make uh, clothing with American-sounding names. But I think for the 20-year-old or the young teenager, they knew that it was more an authentic North American name if it had an L in it because the L doesn't exist in the Japanese language. Mm. I started to think of alliterations and I went this time, if I ever have another company, I'm going to put three L's in it. And then if I can sell it to the Japanese, I'll get three times as much. So, <laughs> of course, it was all in my subconscious, I
1: think. So then what did you put together? I mean, how did Lulu come in mind? I it just and I went
0: Lula. la, 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 la. Just, I don't know, one day, and it, it's especially with the word lemon at that time, because it was very well connected to Detroit, poor quality, right, of cars. Wow. So actually, it was maybe just on the precipice of that being a name which could be used again and putting Lulu and Lemon together seemed to be like a super fresh name. So it was like a
1: formula. You literally were looking for a name with three L's in
0: it. Right.
1: Lululemon.
0: Right. Like when you started
1: it, did you think it was going to turn into what it is today? Was there a vision that this is something
0: everybody needs to use? Because I'd seen... Um, what had happened in the surfskate snowboard industry when I got into it and how quickly it grew. My first yoga class was with six people and and within a month it was 30 people. That was faster than I'd seen in the surfskate snowboard business, but I I had no idea it would be as big as it was. But I knew I was in it first. I knew I had a new business model of eliminating the wholesale person in the middle. Mm -hmm. And I knew I was probably one of the only people in the world that was really thinking of technical clothing outside of Mountain gear, because I'd come from the snowboard industry, and now, you know, to think of like being in the gym and actually thinking about that in the same kind of form as, as mountain survival clothing was an interesting context.
1: You, you seem very methodical. Have you read the book Blue Ocean
0: Strategy? Yes, but long time ago. Long time ago. Yeah, I read a hundred books a year, so I it gets lost in in what one what. Information comes from what book? It almost sounds like that's what you
1: did. You had a blue ocean. I mean, it almost seems like you you came out and, you know, you had a blue ocean. By the way, who came after you that's, uh, would you say, would you put as a competitor of Lululemon?
0: Well, uh, probably the closest that came was um, Athleta. They started off an online and then The Gap bought them. Yeah, I'd say that's as close as it came. Of course, everyone's morphed into and, you know, created an aura of competition around Lululemon, which I think Lululemon definitely had the chance to move out of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we were seven years ahead of anybody and then, you know, we had the chance in probably 210 to really own the whole space of mindfulness the same way that Lou Lululemon did for yoga. But you know, a company gets big, you get people that don't want to change. I'd kind of lost my voting power on the board to be able to go, no, this is the future. I couldn't prove the future and it's so easy for metric people to prove the past. So, and they get very nervous about investing in the future, especially if, there's, if they're a public company and they're really concerned with quarterly results.
1: And so, why, why don't we transition with that? Because I know you mentioned a gap, your new book called Little Black Stretchy Pants. Um, the cover is an incredible cover. You have this whole... Uh, and by the way, I mean I, you talk about you know, the fact that when you made these pants, one of the things about a woman is the fact that they're uncomfortable when they wear their pants, that you know, they're just worried at yoga but they don't want to wear it in the streets because uh, athleisure, there's a different word, the whole camel toe goes away and you were thinking about designing it in a way where people get comfortable and they go in the streets and sport it. But you know, when you're talking about some of the creativity uh, that goes away in the business, would you say some of that was uh, uh, when you brought in Christine Day? Because in the book, you talk about Christine Day, the existing CEO at the time that you had a bit of
0: a direct conversation with. Can you walk me a little bit through what happened there? We were a company that, when uh, I had three kids under the age of two when I kind of decided I was going to like. Um, three kids under, under the, age the age of two. two. Yeah, so it was kind of like Lou Lemon was a cash cow. Didn't need wow. any money. But I needed advice and I wanted to, you know, to transition and my job. As an entrepreneur i thought from the book the e-myth was always to move myself out of technical like no no move myself out of um, day-to-day operations and get above so i could like be that seven years in the future christine day was a great c you know ceo for the first couple of years but then it became obvious to me that there's a real difference between what a ceo is and what a chief operating officer is the ceo has to keep the culture and the vision I think that's their number one job. To me, the COO is somebody who runs the company and runs the operation than metrics. So what became clear to me after after a while was that I had an operator metrics CEO. So there's an obvious clash because I'm looking for things seven years in the future and position the company seven years in the future, and a metrics CEO will want to be you know provide the numbers for. Wall Street that quarter. When that happens and they're bonused that way, then they're going to operate in a short-term fashion. And the easiest way to do that, especially with a great brand like Lululemon, you just lower the expenses. In other words, the number, the great mm-hmm. nutlet, the great kind of people you have, yep. the great level of quality you have, really easy to cut down for a couple of years, raise the prices. It looks like the SEAL's a genius when I look at it and I go, those are called bad profits. In the long run, that's gonna kill you, which is ex- exactly what happened to Lou Lemmon.
1: So, So let me ask you, so CEO and uh, uh, COO, the uh, role of a COO is purely operational on a daily basis to you, so what is the role of a CMO? I know it's marketing, but is it pretty specific to you on how you gauge? Because you seem like you're pretty meticulous on what you expect from each role and define each role. What do you look at a CMO? Uh, or a president, is a president different than a CEO? I'm actually curious to know what you think about that.
0: Well, I think a lot of these, when you're talking about president, COO, CEO, a lot of those are like indicating that that person's next in line. I don't know where president fits in because I've never really had a president, I've had the COO. But if you put someone's COO, it's really like saying, okay, if, if the CEO got hit by a bus, the COO is in there and it's a, it's an indication to the public market that you've got somebody ready and in, in place ready, you know, to step into that position. Because the uh, in a public board, the number one job that they have is to have a great CEO. Their number two job is to have a pipeline for that CEO.
1: Wow. So no one who's going to replace them sure and what is that typical timeline is there a set timeline or not necessarily
0: well it really depends on on who your ceo is i mean in most cases a ceo will last like four to five years so and it's really in my belief that the ceo ceo's number one job from the book good to great a number five leader is develop someone who's better than and under them such that whenever they leave actually the company runs better that's, to me, is a level five CEO. Let me
1: ask you, w- did Christine Day follow you as a CEO? Is that when you stepped down as a chairman and CEO and then she came? Or had you already had other CEOs after you before bringing Christine Day in?
0: Yeah, I was CEO. And then when we went public, I became chairman. And we hired a, a CEO who um, uh, worked for Reebok. Uh, Bob Mears was his name. And he did... A great job helping us with our production because that was probably our bald neck at mm-hmm. the time he was still an east coast kind of executive and wasn't quite right for us but he was kind of a what i'd call a pretty face for going public in other words interesting the, the people that are going that are investing when you go public they've got a thousand companies to look at so they want to know that there's somebody in there that's kind of done it before or kind of been in a public company kind of understands it it's kind of like they need a babysitter or some Uh, It's part of their due diligence. Do you think it's almost mathematically impossible for a founder
1: of a company to be happy with any CEO he or she hires? Because as a founder you're the heartbeat, right? And so to you everything is like, do you know what we've put into this? Do you know what this logo means? Do you know what the stories behind the system? Do you know behind the culture of this? Do you know why we look at vision first? Do you think it's uh, difficult for a founder And a visionary like yourself to have anybody that follows you and say, "I'm happy with the seal."
0: Well, I think specifically if the visionary, a founder, got more of a creative mind like I do, any great creative person is never happy. If they're happy, they're the wrong creative person. Got it. The minute a creative person has created something, they're unhappy with it. (laughs) I mean, really, you know, and they should be. So the. My job then is to like, if, okay, great. I'm a creative person and I'm, so I'm an analytical creative person. So my job then is to surround myself with structural social people. So in any kind of dynamics, there has to be that balance. So if I'm that, as I knew I was a, a, you know, a visionary, Mm -hmm. creative, um, analytical person, then my needed my CEO to be the very opposite, which, which in, in almost all cases they have been. Mm -hmm. And I think that that system worked out beautiful until it didn't. I mean, the, the real story about that is that I lost my control of the board. And I think for anybody going to get private equity and then to go public, right? When you go to, to get, go with private equity, you've got to know what your board of directors and the governance is going to look like when you're public, not when you're just taking on private equity money because that's where really all the power lays is when the entrepreneur first sells their company. So I didn't do that, it's my fault. You know, I I have a, I lost control of the board. Is that when
1: you sold 48% of the stakes? Is that what you were saying? That event was kind of how yeah, things changed?
0: Yeah, which was great. It okay. was all, it all, that all, that was all perfect. Right. But I just didn't see the long-term <laughs> ramifications of not being digging in and finding out what the governance structure was gonna be when we went public. Naturally, when you go public, and this is like really, really fascinating, You end up, I had no idea that we needed more board of directors than we already had. You know, I get told like a month before, I'm a very um, in-the-depth creative person, so it's not like I've gone out and been to Harvard. I've had an economics degree, but that didn't mean I knew somebody that could be on the public board of directors, the United States board of directors. My board that I had elected more people because you've got to have three people on the governance, three people on the audit, and three people on the... um, um, the compensation committee. Just the nature of who wants to be on a board the mindset of that person is not necessarily a creative person. In other words, almost the the way the boards are set up kills a creative person. It's very um, metric driven, it's very by-the-book. The litigation system in the United States is phenomenal. So. Everything, nothing can kind of get documented, everything can kind of get talked about. There's no real love or caring about the non-metrics of innovation, culture, brand, because you can never get sued for it. So the board of directors doesn't really care. A creative founder who's, that's their, that's what they really bring to the Mm -hmm. board of directors, loses their power because what they say, is one versus almost eight other people.
1: When that happened to you, what did you do? You know, when a creative person loses the ability to keep being creative because you're being driven by logical people, how did you handle that?
0: I didn't really know what was happening. I felt like like we had these directors that were coming to our company because they went, man, Lululemon is like creating the number one metrics in the world in apparel. I mean, it was off the charts. And I thought that they would want to come to the company to learn why that was because directors don't, to a great extent, don't really need the job. Most of them are quite wealthy Mm -hmm. and they're trying to give back and I really honor that. After a while, that that kind of gets lost. Non-creative people can't handle the unknown that creative people bring into the process. I always believe in this thing, the law of attraction, and I think that they want more people like them surrounded them in the board like them not like you yeah right and Got they it. also want a CEO like that because they know how to talk to that CEO do you,
1: f- do you think it's almost like uh, company starts uh, you are the most important person in a company because you're the creative visionary founder right mm-hmm. and as a company starts going past the maturity phase it's almost like the board of directors the directors the money people want to get rid of you because you're almost getting in the way of them increasing the data the x-factor so they can make the most on their money in return do you think it's almost like you're getting in the way as a creative founder do you think they look at it
0: that way i think they do i think they're but they don't know that they think that way that's the interesting thing it's a very subconscious thing but i know they're smart people and i know they've been in big businesses and i know that they you know whatever business they were in they knew that there had to be a right balance between creative and analytic or metric and you know a metric over here yeah. safety security don't rock the boat be careful versus you know the the creative person who's out on this end so you've got to have both these and it's a teeter-totter and you got to balance sometimes it goes up and down up and down interesting so so then I will have a follow-up question for someone like you say
1: say I'm your protégé I look up to you and you've chosen to mentor me for no reason just to want to mentor me right and I'm coming to you and I'm speaking to you and you say, Pat, you're a little too competitive. And I'm like, but you don't understand, Chip, we, you know, we're going to build, everybody needs to have this. This is just amazing. But, Pat, I'm just telling you, you're a little too competitive. Your edge is too much. Your edge is too this, right? So for me, I'll come and say, well, Chip, where were you when you were my age, right? What were you thinking about when you were my age? And then you're going to come back and say, but you don't understand, Pat, it's too much. You're, you're going to drive people away by being this competitive. So do you think it's almost similar, like when I asked you and I said, how competitive were you? I'm very competitive, but I had to learn how to collaborate and bring people together and rather making it about the team. Do you think this is a very common trend that happens? I have my own board. And my board, these are people that have made money. These are people that have done uh, uh, fairly well for themselves. So they're not coming in because they're just uh, an advisory board, an uncle that makes 600 grand year that's doing you a favor. These are people that have made... 200 million 100 million 50 million they've done well for themselves so they look at it as an X factor right do you think the longer you're in business it becomes more logical and the emotional side goes away would you say there was an element of paranoia with you or no you were pretty free spirited let's trust everybody
0: good you know, environment. I definitely trust everybody um, I think Wow give before expectation a return I think if I had somebody who was that competitive I would probably let them go or I would coach them, what I'm really looking for is I'm looking for leaders that can create other leaders. Of course. So in other words, if people aren't going to look up to that competitive sure. person and go, that's somebody I can learn from and that I can move to the next level from and where everyone's inclusive and everyone wins in it, then, then it probably wouldn't be the right culture for Lululemon.
1: Got it. And that's one of the reasons why when you had a chance to, but maybe it is, I don't know, maybe you can correct me with this. Where you almost uh, you were twice the size of a price point of uh, Under Armour, and you sat with uh, Plank, I believe, and you guys talked about doing a deal together. But you said the company was a little too over the edge. Uh, uh, I don't know what word you use, but yeah,
0: and that that all gets overblown. I didn't ever talk to Kevin Plank. About, okay, that's what the article anything. was written that you sat I down and you spoke to him. Whatever, if that was an article, that was a media person creating a story in order to sell sensationalism, in order to sell marketing clicks, in order to pay their mortgage and their kids. Let's, Let's be clear on that. No, the only statement I made is that, you know, I went, you know, in my own mind, I went down, we talked, and I went, wow, wouldn't it be neat if. We could put this great men's company together with this great woman's company. So you actually I mean, saw it. Obvious. I mean, Nike was the big the big. Um, sure. nut. You know, we were both good at opposite ends of that. So it made sense to, like, think about it. Mm. It would be stupid of me not to, like, contemplate that that would be a, a good move. But this, that the cultures were just too diverse. One ultra-male win at all costs, and Lululemon was everyone wins. It
1: almost sounds like, because I know in the book you talk a lot about the fact that there's three different types of women and uh, One is a superwoman. The other one is a balanced woman and then uh, power woman power woman Can you can you talk a little bit about uh, on that? Because I mean you talk about September 28 32 years old That's very specific. You know, it's for a target market for a target market You got very specific on who was the ideal target market for you and it's detailed owns a cat is thinking about possibly getting married, but not yet. Is athletic, takes care of her body. You were that detailed about who your customer
0: was. That's incredible. I believe as a, to start a company, you've got to know the real subconscious of the customer that's buying it. And for me, that 32 year old was our iconic, like that was our, I don't know, Tiger Woods, LeBron James, mm-hmm. whatever you want it to be. We didn't have to go out and buy you know, buy, you know, big money sponsorship. Ours was just to make sure that that 32-year-old loved everything that we did. It's interesting because everything we do is segmented. Every time we go on the computer, anything we say, it's all segmented. So in branding, then I, I had to figure out, well, who is our customer? And so then that's when I came up with, Just like, I'm sorry, just like Gen X, Gen Y, you mm -hmm. know, that type of thing. I came up with Superwoman was a certain age, a certain mindset. And that was the mother of these Supergirls that were these highly educated daughters of these power women. They created a whole new world that had never existed before. And that was a really a 24 to 32 year old woman that was highly educated, professional with no children, owned a condo and very fit, traveled the world. Because before that age, 1998, you know, you could say all women got, you know, had babies at 24 and left the workforce. So it was a major shift in the way the world occurred. And I was putting language to what I saw in reality so did you like I want to know the process
1: because for me I'm in the financial industry so who's your ideal client 27 to 35 married with kids you know uh, ambitious certain drive that they have we have certain things that we look at but for you what was your processing of coming out with who would be the perfect ideal candidate for you was it research was it you sitting down and thinking about Did you collaborate with other people on your board or your home office or your marketing team? How did you come out, come out with that number?
0: In Africa, I know so much charity money was moving in there because the goal was to educate women because everyone knew if a, high, a better educated woman will wait longer to have children and have fewer children. So when I woke up one day and I saw something in the paper that said 60% of the graduates at a university are women, like in 1998, I knew there was a massive change in the world, and maybe I was the first person to see it. Where really, I think that was the inflection point for women being more powerful than men. But it's 20 years ago. Then you gotta, gotta go, okay, if these girls are now 22 years old, mm-hmm. what are they gonna grow into? Like, what's gonna happen? Well, they are, they are gonna have condos, they are gonna be well-dressed, they're gonna have money. 28 year old woman before that didn't have any money because they had two kids and their husband was out working and they were struggling on a mortgage and there was nothing there. But the minute that these women are still single and they're still just growing their career and uh, rather than leaving the the workforce at 24 and now they're 28, 30, 32, making not this like 30,000 a year, but 80, 90, 100,000, there's a lot of disposable income there. So then I went, okay, I knew yoga was coming. I knew there was a lot of other things kind of put in place. And I knew that there was now the ability to buy a very, very high quality athletic product that had never been made before.
1: So that, that was your process and on how you came out with that. So do you have a system on how you make decisions? Like in your mind, is there a system
0: that you have on how you make any kind of a decision? I know one of my, my biggest issues, and other people, maybe other entrepreneurs will find this, is again being a creative person, being five to seven years in the future, almost everything I think is going to happen is, it's almost like a feeling. Because it's a million touch points, not any one specific thing. And you know, I say that, you know, 6% of women out of university were um, graduates, but that was like, That took me over the edge of probably a thousand different touch points that I'd probably had internally but I didn't know how to express. Expressing, you know, like a color to a blind person is like very difficult and it's the same kind of thing and why creative, creative people inside a company have to be protected because sometimes they're wrong and when they go wrong, Then the metric people just love to go, oh, I knew you'd be wrong. Of course, I'm going to be wrong every now and again. But that gives them the ability to jump in, take control, put parameters around the creative person, and the creativity never comes back. And I'd say this is the biggest downfall of American public companies.
1: Interesting. Not knowing how to nurture the creative minds and allowing data to crush the creatives machine of coming up with the next idea. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? Right,
0: my statement would be you have to have a CEO that understands creative so well that they can protect creative from the metric finance machine huh. that is usually, they're usually better spoken, they're usually better educated. They can prove their data because they have mm. metrics from the past. Where when the metri- when the creative person does something wrong, or you know, it doesn't work out, they can, then they have to start proving the future. And if you have eight of nine people on your board of directors that are sitting there, they're gonna wow. go, yeah, we'll go with this person that can prove wow.
1: something. So you would say somebody like you is living in a future truth. Sure,
0: sure, hundred percent. Future truth. So you're a
1: future truth guy yourself. Sure, sure. Unbelievable. That's that's an interesting way of. So so what do you do with that? Is it kind of like politics, where it's like Democrats and Republicans? They both kind of need each other to keep it balanced, or do you kind of have to separate creative fully from logic and don't let them clash because? If you're a creative founder, you have no choice but to sit in that board and when you're a chairman of the board and not allow these guys to tell you, well, what happened last quarter? Well, what's going on? Based on your numbers you did three quarters ago or two years ago, it looks like this is what's going to happen. What do you do to make sure you don't have your creative guy's heart be broken? At least, you know, their
0: ideas be broken. Both sides have to appreciate each other. And the great analogy is just getting married. Men, Men and women are not supposed to be alike on any kind of level. I mean, there's some crossover, but they have an end vision and an end goal. And in my mind, that's always, we want to raise great children that are productive in the world and that we love and they, we love them, mm. right? We want to be great grandparents. That's the end goal. So you have these two people that almost can look at life entirely different ways. And even within that, you can have one metric and one creative person. You can have one, one nurse, one engineer. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's all over the mm-hmm. place. But these people, because they have a common end goal, they know they need each other to get there. And it's a synergy thing. One plus one equals three. But if you just have a metric board, then it's one. Just have a bunch of creative people, it's just one. I mean, that has, that. has that's the big opening I'm trying to really, well, one of 10 big openings I'm trying to say in my book. So, you know, one of the questions I asked you earlier that
1: I'd like to bring up is, you know, so many times a company has a, certain direction they've gone product-wise hypothetically like maybe you know some companies say we're gonna go low-income we're gonna go middle America we're gonna go upper class we're gonna go fluent because we're Goldman Sachs and you have to come in with a minimum of 10 million and then you change your philosophy right you went from 1% men 99% women now you're 30% men 70% women that's not an easy thing to do what how did you guys
0: make that big of a transition from one to 30. Well, actually, I think it's not good enough. I think it's actually one of the big um, failings of Lululemon and and, and a missed opportunity, I would call it. Um, Definitely when we started off in yoga, there was most men were quite slight, if I can put it that way. And what I'm not effeminate, but slight, because they were in such good shape, but they're usually on the small end of things. And really in hot yoga at that time, all you wore, I mean, really a lot of the men that came actually did wear Speedos. And then we started making, you know, kind of short, kind of shorts, but it wasn't like men needed a lot of clothing Mm -hmm. in those hot things. So that was the genesis of, of, of where we came from. And then women just, because nobody else was doing women's beautiful athletic clothing that was technical, we really... The market was so big, we couldn't really like build on the men's that much. Of course, I come from men's surf, skate, snowboarding mm-hmm, business. That mm-hmm. was the whole thing. So I was quite cognizant that the future was there and there was a time to do it. Probably around 2008, you could start to see the inflection point where all these women were looking so good coming into the gym and men like kind of had to step up the plate. You know, it was kind of like, wow. no, I can't wear like this baggy, holy like, gray stuff that i haven't washed in three weeks like no you know like i gotta you know this and i think people stopped going to bars at that time they stopped drinking they stopped you know there i mean it is a general trend what year
1: did you say this because coming from you that means you actually studied this oh wait yeah
0: 2008 anything had to do with
1: the drop of the market or not at all it had nothing no, to do with the 38 percent. So. okay no no I, got it
0: no actually i the one thing about that is i think that Instead of people doing gambling and drinking and smoking, mm-hmm. they actually moved to athletics even more as a coping mechanism. So the market
1: crash, in essence, what you're thinking—I don't know what data you have. I'd be curious to know more. The market crash made us healthier.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, or we went to a different form of coping hmm. with it. So around that time, then you, we could, uh, I could easily see that the men's market was never going to be as big as the woman's market because women. Just have more clothing. They've got more pieces to cover up. Yeah. The bottom line. That is a good point. And uh, they're colder, and so they, you know, they think much differently. Than well, men. some
1: men would want less pieces to be covered <laughs> up, right? But that's a completely different market. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, like Paul right here sitting behind the camera. <laughs> but please go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry.
0: So, um, so then there was an inflection time though that it was time to like set the base for for men's, and at the time. We were just coming out of being constrained by a retail store. I mean, e-commerce was just eking out in 2005, six, seven. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was mostly a commodity product. It was like nuts and bolts or Kleenex or something like that. Not something that was tactile. You could hold, you know, that you needed to fit and all that type of stuff. So we were just kind of moving into that era. But it was easy to see that, you know, because we couldn't make like 50% of our store, 40% of our store men's, but e-commerce was going to allow that platform to happen. All we had to do was show it in our stores and allow the freedom and the breathability for men to go online and start, and start buying it. And we could have been 10 years ahead of Nike or Under Armour Ideas, Mm. anybody else, because nobody else was, was doing the vertical model, missing the middleman. We had the opportunity to make a much, much better quality product at a much better price. Which we did mostly until we, you know, got, you know, quarterly reports, you know, from the Wall Street. and (laughs) Going back to these logical uh, board uh, and uh, directors. I know, it's like it's painful. Painful. So
1: uh, let me ask you, I see a Lululemon uh, store in a mall. And I'll generally just look at it and I'll say, well, nice stuff, and I'll walk away. In my mind, my wife, she'll stop by Lululemon and goes inside. And I'll say, I'll see you there, I'm going to go to Nike or something like that. You are a big guy. I'm a big guy. You just said earlier that some of the customers that were coming in to want to wear Lululemon, they were smaller. Like, I'm in Argentina last week, and I'm in Italy the month before, and I go to stores (laughs) to buy clothes. I'm like, I need a sports jacket, sir. I'm sorry, man. We're not going to find any sports jacket your size in Argentina or in no, Italy. No, no, no. Because no. what it is, you know, their market is a different market. Do you wear Lululemon today yourself? Are the products built for somebody like you to wear
0: Lululemon? Yeah, it had to work for me. So, okay, so you so do, that do that wear Lululemon. hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. But uh, what I'm really saying, at the beginning of like 1998 to 2002, the, the yogi men were quite small and slight. Right. So, so, but that morphed really quickly. And and what I'm saying is, really, we just Lululemon just had to make masculine stuff, but it made the mistake of it. Kept hiring fashion designers from I'd call the East Coast of the U.S. who didn't have the content. Like, the West Coast makes things functional and then makes them beautiful. Where the East Coast makes them beautiful and then makes them Mm. tries to make them look athletic. Got it. That's a a whole different distinction.
1: Interesting interesting so this means now next time i walk past lululemon i have to go inside that's what you're saying i have to go and see if i can find something because these ripped jeans i mean you just called that my ripped jeans you're like these guys are wearing ripped clothes you know going out paul we got to stop by lululemon and find some tights for you
0: well i don't think actually people even wear jeans anymore like yeah. i think that's it's we've killed it in the woman, women's business and you see um, vf corporation trying to sell their jeans business because nobody wants to buy that well, the apparel business itself is so competitive
1: because how fast things change. And if you don't change with the times, it's, it's not a thing that one thing lasts a long time. So you have to always be adapting constantly. Would you agree with that? No, or?
0: no I think that's that's two different businesses again. That's the fashion of Zara, H&M. That's what I'm, know, the ca- fa- I'm talking fashion. about that side. You know, it's like we're on the end of like uh, technical, like uh, like technical advances occur every year. and. And again, where I'm, you know, I think the future of, of athletic apparel, I look, I look at people in the Olympics, and I go, that is the most functional apparel there is. You know, it's total lycra, it's tight under the armpits, it's tight in the crotch. Mm-hmm. I mean, once you've been in something like that, everything else feels uncomfortable. Even, But, you know, our, it's only our social norms in North America that tells us it's not. If you go into Europe, you see men for years have been wearing, you know, Lycra to run in, you know, for, you know, wear Speedos, they don't have any problem. Like, you know, like, well, you know, I mean, maybe you know, for you're Iranian. It's there, like they don't even have the context that, you know, that they have from this kind of religious, social, moral thing in North America. So what is the future though? I mean, you know, you talk to Elon Musk and Elon Musk yeah. talks
1: about the future and where we're going towards and what he thinks is going to happen. And you, you are five, seven years ahead. What's really going to happen? Are we going to have, like, smart clothes? Like, is it going to
0: be smart, technical, ap- you know, athletic gear, or where are we going? Yeah, I don't b- really believe in all the wires in okay. the clothing. You see, now I think it, it's making clothing very uncomfortable. It's heavy. It's, it's, it's kinda get, it kind of defeats the purpose of kind of wearing clothing that feels naked. I do feel it's going to be Lycra. Um, I think it's going to give me a complete suit, top to bottom. It's going to the actual fabric will be temperature control. It will handle stink. I think you can see, you know, the Apple Watch getting bigger, but mm-hmm. I think it's going to be a full Apple Watch here with ear implants here. I think the the phone or whatever we call it will do will prick into our skin for blood and moisture and salt. It will it will compare that against big data. It will send that to. You know, our doctors only when we, or, you know, I mean, actually the big data just uh, will, will tell us, you know, whether we need to check in with a doctor or not. But I also think, you know, from a fashion point of view, there's going to be a, people won't be designing clothing so much as they'll be designing apps. And you'll go on an app and kind of pick out a design that you want your clothing mm-hmm. to turn to mm-hmm. that day. So by color Come on. design you think whatever, we're going there. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. 100%, 100%, we have to go there. We have to go there. Well if you look over like a period of time when people dressed in England when it was cold and no one was athletic and nobody sweat and and, you know it was like all the clothing and the jackets and everything Mm -hmm. and the wool and everything and you look from that time till now and you look at how, how much technical clothing has influenced general clothing and you go out another 20 years. I mean, we're not that far from it.
1: So you think people are going to be receptive to the whole chip going into the body?
0: Yeah, I think it'll just be a prick. I think it'll be something. But is it going like to
1: track that. me like where I'm at? Is it going to be like a tracking system? To, well, you know, that's, that's, identity. Your phone,
0: then. that's your phone. That's a different okay. thing than I think what I'm talking about, about health and fitness. And I also fully believe in the 3D printing of food. And, and I think everybody's going to be fit 20 years from now. I don't think, that, I don't think there's going to be any such thing as... Um, people that are overweight or have issues. It's, really? Yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah.
1: That, you know, <laughs> it's just so maybe because for us, Fitbit, like I look at this here, yeah. right? We had everybody at our home office, all of a sudden put Fitbit. Next thing you know, people are losing 10 pounds in a month, 15 pounds in a month. One of the things I talk about in in our company is the fact that visionaries speak a language that very few people Mm. speak, right? And some companies instill a certain culture that you can't teach that language (coughs) to somebody. You can't just come to the home office or the company or certain culture and speak that right off the bat. It's like you and I deciding to go to you know Portugal and speak in Portuguese if we don't know it we're not going to be able to speak that language did you have a certain language that you spoke as a visionary and a founder yourself and if you did what was it and whatever it was how
0: did you transfer it to me as one of your employees or your team members again I've read probably a thousand books in the year 1997 and um, out of those uh, I'm sorry hundred books out of the hundred books there were five things that kinda happened that I went oh these are Kind of encompass all the other ninety-five, and so one of them was Good to Great by Collins, um, The Goal by Rosenblatt, a Psychology of Achievement. It's a it's an audio by Brian Tracy. Good book, great book. Uh, yeah, really. We've had Brian Tracy before. Yes. Yeah. And um, the Landmark Form, which mm. for me you went um, to the Landmark Form. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, and I phenomenal from um, learning the, like the definition of integrity, why I complain, how I communicate, how I create and um, really transformational. With those, you know, five things, it was like, oh, and Seven Habits highly, uh, highly effective people. We created like about 30 terms and definitions from those, and that's what, we, that's what we used to communicate in the company. So by when dates, conditions of satisfaction, you know, what is, you, know you can complain twice, but then you have to take action. What is action? Everyone, we did, had one definition of integrity, because this is actually a pretty funny thing. Everyone thinks they have integrity, but everyone has a different definition of integrity. That's right. So, far that, so there's no integrity. So I think a company has to define integrity. And for Lou Lemon, it was doing what we say we were going to do, when we say we will do it, and how is it, it was expected to be done. And if we can't get it done, then we have to go back and tell everyone immediately and, um, and fix, fix the issue that we caused so did you constantly talk about this over and over and over again in your staff meetings
1: and employees this stuff yeah. all over the place
0: yeah it well i documented it and you know but of course when you bring in new executives from the outside they have their own like yeah 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 i got your culture yeah mm. yeah yeah and they're, and they're really good at interviews and they're going yeah we yeah we believe what you're saying but they don't really do it and i really wasn't aware of that kind of thing at the time our meetings started to show up five minutes late then ten minutes late twenty people would be waiting and we never did that before. Meetings always started directly on time or you'd almost be fired. Because if a creative meeting starts five minutes late, then the people in the meeting think, oh, I can get production, you can come in five, you know, like five days late. If it's missing, you miss five to ten days of a winter season, then you miss those days to sell. So then you gotta put stuff on discount. You then your margins drop. Then your Uh, Sales staff doesn't want to be, you know, your quality sales staff doesn't want to be with a company that discounts, so they leave. So then you get, you know, I'd say a lower quality of people Mm -hmm. and then they have higher turnover. So then your training costs are more, then you're, you know, the whole, it's just a spiral down. So integrity, it's a mountain that can never be, you know, you can never get to the top of it, but you got to have a standard. Were you a fire-fast
1: type of a leader or no? If you notice somebody doesn't fit the culture, were you fire-fast or you gave people, you know, two, three, four chances?
0: Yeah, I, I think I would be an opening for a person changing for sure, but at a certain point, it has to be, no, this person is wrong. So get it yeah. right
1: before you hire them even so you know it's oh. not going to fit or because you know how many times you hire somebody it just doesn't fit culturally.
0: I made that mistake. I mean, I made that mistake with my board of directors and, mm-hmm. I, you know, who we brought in, and, uh, and I made that mistake with, you know, uh, A CEO but you know the CEO worked great for a couple years and that's not so but you're right firing fast the minute that you know I kind of caught her in a couple of like lies then okay it doesn't matter about anything else she's lying about a thousand other things in the company and it's bad for the culture it's bad for the future of the company we have to get rid of that person now so lies compromise loose lips you're not with it
1: it's that's a that's a terms for Termination right there.
0: Yeah, and I think that that because that never stopped and the board of directors never got rid of that Person with the lies then then that then it becomes okay to lie in the company Mm. and that never stopped perpetuating in the board even up until the AGMs. That is unbelievable Let me ask you. Do you have
1: all of this stuff from the five books in 1997 that impacted the landmark forum? The stephen covey and psychology do you have that on a pdf which you would give to your guys or no is that available is that something on it's, your it's website in, or? it's
0: um if it's not in the book it's um you can go to my website that's kind of an appendix to the book and you can find the the linguist. it's called the linguistic abstraction so the terms and definitions perfect are- so this is what we're going to
1: do this is what we're going to do just for that part we are gonna leave that link uh, below as well for what he talked about in 1990s. So, let's make sure to do that. As far as the book goes, to finish it up, why, if you could speak a little bit about the book, what could you say about this book here?
0: Well, it's a book about incredible people, a, a culture that was really based on um, self-development of people, giving before expectation, um, everyone wins. It was, a, it was the antithesis of everything that yoga is and how to put the love of yoga into business. And that, that that love could actually make more profits than an ordinary business that was built on just metrics.
1: So, you know, usually we'll do uh, interviews and it's value-tainment, which is, it'll be some entertainment and it'll be some value, right? Yeah, just so you know, for me, I have gotten value from sitting next to you nonstop, from beginning to the end, so in my brain, I've taken 20-30 pages of notes, just okay. so you know, that I'm going to go back and watch this and take a bunch of notes myself, are uh, absolutely incredible. For me, if I'm on your side and I watch something like this, I can't, I'm rewatching this myself and taking notes because of how many things I could apply to my business to help you grow your business to the next level. You think this is just an interview. We haven't even gotten fully in the book. Thank you so much Thanks for your Patrick. time. I Appreciate you. Beautiful. Truly, thank yeah. you so much. Powerful guy. This was great. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Value Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick David, And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.